Time to uh, talk about video gaming. And there's an article at theconversation.com that really caught our attention a few days ago. This guy's written a few at the same point, so we'll we'll quote several. But the, the, the one that got our attention this week was parents of online gamers need to think twice before labeling the hobby, quote, a waste of time. The author of this piece is Joe Todd. Mr. Todd is a PhD student in recreation and leisure studies and spends a lot of time paying attention to gaming and perhaps playing the odd game as well. Joe Todd, good morning. Welcome. Thank you for having me. That's a great introduction. It's good to have you with us, too. So uh, let's before we get into the nuts and bolts of your articles, and I've got three of them in front of me here, Joe, and you're doing, you're doing some great work. Let's just, if, if you don't mind taking a moment, and let's just sort of establish a base for the conversation with respect to online gaming. How much of a thing is it now, and especially post-pandemic, Joe? Oh, it's huge now, and it's got even bigger given the pandemic. Uh, you know, like there's countless amounts of streamers and people playing games with their friends and family, and now more than ever with the physical distancing, uh, online gaming is huge because it's a way to stay connected and have fun with those around you. Uh, we had a, a tournament here, a Fortnite tournament here in Vancouver at Rogers Arena last summer, Joe. The place was packed, as in 18,000 paying customers. The prizes for the winners were in the millions. And most people who don't know anything about this technology and this sport were just blown away uh, because yeah, what, uh, unless you're on the inside and understand what's going on from the outside you're, you're still sort of looking at this thing and, and wondering how on earth all of those millions of dollars came to be attached to video games that's right and fortnite's not even the biggest one like there's league of legend there's dota 2 and those are above almost 50 million in prize money to be won so fortnite i think has uh, really established like a uh, an introductory popularity, but there are games that are even bigger than that. And the owners of the Vancouver Canucks, who, by the way, advanced to play the Vegas Golden Knights tonight uh, in Edmonton, you may have noticed. The owners, oh, yeah. the owners of the Vancouver Canucks also own a Fortnite team, Joe. And they got the yeah. Canucks colors and uniforms. And uh, it, 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 so it's they understand they're in it to make money. So they get spending the money to, to put this package together as a team for entertainment purposes because they know they're going to get their money back. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of teams do that too. And uh, the National Hockey League has many teams that have a uh, an NHL 20 team associated with them. And then they'll have their players compete in tournaments as well. So uh, the NHL is not the only one. I believe the NBA and uh, NFL both do that as well. And Julie reminds me ever so swiftly that uh, the Canucks uh, organization is involved in an Overwatch team, Joe, not a Fortnite team. So this shows you yeah. exactly who on this duo is more connected to online gaming. Still, That's right, yeah, the Vancouver Titans and the Overwatch. That's right, exactly. So why do people still think, and large numbers of people, and you've, you've focused this most recent article at the conversation uh, at parents, but parents are only a portion of the population who tend to think, to some degree, Joe, this whole video gaming thing is frankly just a great big fat waste of time. Yeah, and I think it's the way the media's portrayed it. I mean, like constantly you see the figure of the gamer as this lonely, isolated kind of loser, but really they're connected to more people than we could ever imagine. And they're, you know, they're having fun, they're playing with their friends. 
And I don't see what the problem with that is, though, but the media seems focused on, you know, the violence in the video games, the possibilities of addiction. So it is uh, it is pretty crazy. And with the, the recent Joe Rogan comments, I mean, that's a big name uh, talking about them as a waste of time. Well, yeah. And let's elaborate, if you would, because Joe Rogan is, is one of the better known podcasters in uh, in North America. Frankly, the Joe Rogan Experience podcast is uh, is pretty widely uh, picked up lots and lots of subscribers and uh, he had a good go at video gaming recently so give our listeners an opportunity to understand what rogan had to say yeah so i knew rogan was big but i didn't really know he was like 190 million monthly downloads big yeah. so he basically called it just a waste of time he said they're really fun they're really exciting but you don't get anywhere with them and then he uses uh, jiu-jitsu as an example where if you play if you're a jiu-jitsu artist you can compete in tournaments and make money and then become a trainer and you should be focusing your time on things like that but in reality you can do the exact same thing with video games and there are people making millions of dollars and probably more than any jiu-jitsu artist i've ever met right so uh in terms of uh an avocation rather than a hobby because now you're suggesting and and uh, and we know for a fact there are incredible amounts of money associated with video and online gaming but joe how do you connect the dots between the kid in the basement playing video games and the multi-million dollar purses available to the winners of some of these big competitions well, that's just it. And I don't, and you know, I mentioned it in my article. I don't think you really need to put time and money into a hobby or equate time and money with success. Um, so, you know, if the kid in the basement is just having fun and playing with his friends, why should his parent call him like a loser or say they're wasting their time when really they could be just wanting to escape from stress or wanting to, you know, connect with other people? It, it shouldn't always be about that 1%. Uh, being the most successful uh, it's a fun hobby and that's how it should be seen well of course the uh the concern uh, by some parents is just screen time and the fact that uh, some people get a little carried away and tend to well get uh, sort of go away for hours on end and uh, you know uh, some parents are just a little frustrated to the extent that you know would you mind getting out and getting a little fresh air every now and then that too is good for you you know Absolutely. And I, and I, you know what, I would never argue that, you know, they should just stay in and stay inside and play video games all day. I think sports and getting outside exercise is great for you. But you know what, if they don't have a, a game to play or like a sport that they're uh, interested in, uh, what's the harm in a couple hours playing games if all their responsibilities are completed, especially now? given that online learning is going to be uh, more prevalent than ever. Well, I think that's a good point to make, Joe, because as we're beginning to, and you're in Ontario, we here in BC are essentially in the same situation. We have a back-to-school plan for students of all ages. It's not etched in stone. We need to be fluid and flexible, but at the same time, we also have to, as best we can, get the troops back into the classrooms as best we can again. But so uh, we've already, however, adapted in large uh, in a large way to online learning and and that whole thing so the the fact that video gaming is is a part of all of this now i think for the average student that's just it, it's just that it's just it's just more screen time and this this would be the non-academic part 
That's right. And, you know, who's to say you can't learn anything playing a video game, right? I mean, I know Minecraft has uh, multiple ways of learning that uh, kids can partake in. And, you know, there are stories to be heard and seen and interacted with that are probably better than stories I've read in my English class. So they're also an opportunity to learn. You quote in another article you wrote for the same uh, website, The Conversation, you quote, uh, and this goes back 10 or 15 years ago, to uh, an NHL goalie named Ilya Brizgalov, who was yeah. a bit of a, a bit of a video game nut. And we know about hockey players and other athletes who, uh, who tend to spend a lot of time, leisure time, doing this stuff. But 15 years ago-ish, Brizgalov was doing an interview, uh, and uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the interview, or during the interview, replied to one of the reporter's questions with was, well, it's only a game. So look, why, why are you getting so mad? And at the time, that was that was very controversial stuff. He's supposed to be passionate and care deeply. And for a, an athlete to say, hey, come on, it's only a game, shocked a lot of people, Joe. Absolutely. And, you know, in that same article, I talk about how uh, Ninja, probably the largest Fortnite streamer around and who I think is probably responsible for the boom in gaming. He uh, has that same issue where people are now coming at him saying that it's just a game. But at the end of the day, this is this guy's hobby he's in his life and he's put his uh, life's work and dedication into it. And so he shouldn't be criticized for, you know, it's a video game versus it's a sport. You know, this could be uh, an ancient history almost kind of question for you, Joe, because this came up many, many years ago when video games were first becoming a thing and people were struck at the time by the violent nature of some of the graphics and some of the content in some of the games. And so much attention at that time, we're talking probably 10 years ago now, was paid to the psychological effects of all of this uh, blood and guts and gore uh, on games and how that would desensitize players. Now, we've had a lot of years since those initial concerns were raised, and you've been paying a lot of attention to the details since. What do you know about violence and its effect on individuals? That's right, yeah. And, you know, the the media and, uh, you know, the current president, Donald Trump, uh, has an issue with the violent video games, blaming one of the more recent shootings on violent video games but there and i've quoted in uh in my article about joe rogan is that there's just not a lot of matchup between what the media wants to say and what actually is a psychological effect and it seems like there's very little Mm -hmm. so in terms of because there was quite a concerted effort quite a while ago now to pay considerable attention to the uh the effects the negative potential for video games on human psyche and there were a lot of psychologists and their ilk who paid attention and, and studied this and there weren't a lot of negative outcomes that's right. And I mean, even, you know, things like like movies, violent movies were never really looked at as a reason uh, for committing violence. So why was it that video games more so than these other mediums are seen as uh, a terror versus the other ones? So that was probably just a, an upfront reaction to a new phenomenon that people couldn't explain any other way. That's right. And, you know, even back when uh, TV was introduced, there's a 
sociologist who thought that was going to be the end of community, that we would be going bowling alone because we wouldn't uh, be making friends anymore. We'd be just obsessed with the television. (laughs) And you know what? People still go bowling, even with TV and video games. That's the really funny part about it. We have a great conversation underway. Joe Todd is joining us from the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Mr. Todd is a PhD student in recreation and leisure studies and has written extensively on video gaming, uh, notably uh, more recently at theconversation.com. And Joe, uh, I was just talking to Julie, who's a, a bit of a fan, uh, she's uh, involved. She's a big fan of Legend, a uh, League of Legends, uh, and reminded me of that. Uh, they're uh, they're uh, partly in, uh, sponsored by McLaren, the Formula One racing team. This is big stuff, and it's global. She was talking about teams from literally all over the planet. What's the forum for all of those people to get together on? Yeah, I mean, uh, like forum. You mean like where people are watching? Yeah, yeah. Where do they go? Yeah, so everyone seems to be watching on Twitch, and recently it seems like uh, a lot of TV channels are also picking up uh, some of the big tournaments as well. I've seen Sportsnet broadcast uh, some gaming tournaments. I've seen TSN. So it's starting to get attention, and it's interesting to see it pick up. It is indeed, and and interesting that you would talk about uh, the sports teams, because during the Stanley Cup playoffs so far on Sportsnet, Joe, uh, I've seen quite a number of commercials uh, featuring a couple of young guys, enthusiastic young guys, and they're promoting the NHL Gaming World Championship, and they had the European Finals, and they were promoting that. That went yesterday afternoon, and I guess it was 10 grand U.S. to to the top player in in that round and so on but they've been promoting it heavily they they're not as frequent as beer commercials during hockey games but i'm surprised at how frequently they have popped up so clearly uh the they understand who the audience is and uh, they're targeting those people during sporting events that's right and uh nasher the guy who's doing the advertisements he's probably one of the biggest nhl streamers And I think in the U.S. tournament that was just won on Saturday, uh, two of the guys, the winner and the runner-up, were actually associated with the Washington Capitals hockey team. Okay. So everybody's getting involved, and it's awesome to see. And do the teams themselves encourage their fans to to participate in this? Is there a a kind, because you were saying that the winner in the American round was a, a Capitals fan. Do the teams endorse these players then? Yeah, I believe you can catch some uh, reaction on Twitter about the teams um, discussing their winners, and their teams will also have uh, their own um, Twitters as well. Like, I know the Toronto Raptors gaming team uh, has their own Twitter account, so you'll see a lot of uh, crossover there. One of the articles you wrote recently uh, for the conversation uh, was critics who say online gaming is just a game completely miss the point. And you go on to talk about online gaming is, is clearly a serious business, and we've been alluding to this. Professional tournaments, Joe, now have prize pools of over $34 million. That is big-time stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. And even, you know, we were talking about the kid in the basement. That kid in the basement can now get a scholarship for esports gaming. I, I think even the University of British Columbia has a big scholarship that they award to esports gamers. So even schools are starting to see the potential. And of course, here in in Vancouver, in Burnaby, we have the world headquarters of EA Sports, one of the biggest uh, video game companies in the world. That's right. 
And uh, we have a lot of technology. Vancouver is rapidly developing into a tech hub. And a lot of that comes from designers and programmers. Uh, are, are the people who go into those programs, typically, Joe, uh, among other things, gamers? Of course. I mean, I think only uh, a gamer can understand what gamers want and how they can affect uh, society at large through games as well. So I think you're going to start to see games research growing given the continued popularity. Let's talk about gaming addictions for a moment, if you don't mind, because uh, you you mentioned Mr. Trump has uh, alluded to video games as being harmful to the psyche and all of that kind of stuff. And certainly not the first time we've heard that. But we also know stories. For example, the Vancouver Canucks in their farm system, Joe, had a very, very capable young player, a really gifted young athlete who they brought up and I guess tried out with the big team and had to send back down because he was so wired to playing his blinking video games they couldn't get him to focus enough to devote that kind of energy required in the bigs they had to send him down yeah that was uh, that was one of my favorite stories recently because it is interesting to see that some sometimes even it gets a hold of professional athletes. Yes. But, I mean, you can hear now, especially with all these teams being in the bubble, everyone's brought their Xbox You're or right. PlayStation or Switch along. So uh, it seems that it can be managed. And from the research that I've seen is video game addiction is only in a very small population. Right. So maybe, unfortunately, that prospect got caught up in it a little too much. Well, exactly. And, of course, those would be the examples that the media would seize on uh, trying to make a point, particularly if there's an agenda involved. But again, let's uh, go back to some of the stuff you've written recently, Mr. Todd, including some advice for parents still trying to figure out what all this stuff is is all about and particularly worrying about maybe too much time being devoted to that. And, and, and you know, you know, the standard parental concerns. So let's talk about your advice to parents. Yeah, that's right. So I have three kind of ideas that uh, I think parents should know. And the first is to embrace them. I think this popularity is just going to continue to rise. So instead of dismissing your child's playtime as a waste of time, maybe start to wonder why they're spending so much time. Maybe you'll learn a bit about it. And then the second thing is maybe you'll want to get involved. And why wouldn't you want to play with your kid about uh, some games that he's interested in and connect that way. If he's playing because he's stressed out, maybe then you start to learn why is he stressed and then you can further your connection with each other. So I just think there's uh, it's more than a waste of time and I think parents really need to start realizing it because I think they have more of an impact than they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's t- talk about you. you. You've been uh, talking about your child and using the pronoun he. And I'm curious only to the extent that there used to be, and I suspect it's not the same anymore, but there used to be an obvious preferential divide for video games. It was seen in the early days, particularly, Joe, as kind of a guy thing. And I think that's pretty much gone away too, hasn't it? Yeah, and you know what? That's my mistake for getting caught up in that. No, no, it's okay. Uh, But it's a good question, I think. Again, a lot of parents don't know these details. Absolutely, yeah. And I think the more research that I've read is just how much girl gamers are starting to dominate the market. Uh, In games like World of Warcraft, uh, women make up, I think, just over 50% of the population. Like, they're actually more than the men play. 
So it is starting to become a, a, a girl gamer's world, even though I'm sorry that they hate that term. <laughs> Julie's not, she's not looking too, too upset by that right now. And the other, the third item you have on your list of uh, advice for parents is the one that kind of caught my eye. And you can flesh this out for us uh, as a final th- parting thought. Stop equating time with money and success. That's right. So I think especially given the pandemic, you know, it seems like everyone's being pressured to be productive in a time where there's so much downtime, but I don't think we need to be. I think a hobby is a hobby. And I think if you want to enjoy it and just kill some steam, uh, that's great. It doesn't necessarily need to get you anywhere. As long as you're having fun, you're enjoying your time. What's the problem with that? I don't think it needs to make you money. And I think only the 1% will ever make money, but that's the same with sports. So I don't think the comparison is fair, but you know what? It's time to have some fun and to stop thinking of it as anything uh, more, even though it can be. Yeah, and one of the one of the uh, articles you wrote was social video games to play during the coronavirus quarantine, Joe. And we'll let you you'll let you throw a few onto the table, especially for people. Now, Julie, of course, is a pro almost, uh, but many of us aren't. Many of us are still learning, and many of us are frankly trying to catch up to our kids. So, what would you recommend? Uh, uh, give us a few titles, uh, especially for non-gamers to kind of cross over into that world happily so it's not too complex and it's mostly fun sure so i think i mean the new york times recently called uh, animal crossing new horizons as the game of the coronavirus pandemic okay because that's just a a laid back life simulator kind of game so you do some chores you uh, develop an island and you customize your character and you can do that with other people uh, around the world and you can do it with people in your own house. So you grow your own civilization together and it's fun and it's cartoony and it's playful. So it's uh, appropriate for all ages. And again, the title of the game is? Animal Crossing New Horizons. Excellent. Joe Todd, this has been a real treat. We very much enjoy your making yourself available to us today, and uh, we should do this again uh, post-pandemic, assuming that that time will ever come. But we do appreciate your time today. I would love to do that, and I uh, appreciate you giving me a platform to speak about the issues. It's uh, awesome. Thanks keep, very much for your help. Yeah, and keep those articles coming. That's good. They're good stuff. Very entertaining. Joe Todd do. joining you. us this morning from the University of Waterloo, where he is a Ph.D. student in recreation and leisure studies and does find time to play the odd video game. It's a pleasure to welcome Bill Curry back to the program. Mr. Curry is with the Globe and Mail. He is with the Ottawa Bureau of the Globe, specializing in parliamentary and financial matters. And to talk about another epic week that was. Bill Curry, good morning. Welcome back. Yes, good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us, Bill. You are a financial specialist, so let's start with uh, right there in your wheelhouse, the resignation of Mr. Morneau and his replacement by Ms. Freeland, the uh, Deputy Prime Minister. First of all, Mr. Morneau's resignation. Let's start with that, and were you even a tad surprised when that came down? Well, I think if you were to say a few weeks ago that uh, Bill Morneau was not going to be finance minister uh, when Parliament comes back in the fall, I think everybody would have been surprised, uh, including me, because there was not uh, a whole lot of sign of disagreement between uh, Mr. Morneau and anybody else that we could see in, in public view. Mm-hmm. But just over the uh, over the week leading up to that, there had started to be stories in the press and the Golden Mail and other places that... Uh, 
suggested that all was not well in the relationship between the Prime Minister's office and the Finance Minister's office. And so that gave an inkling that something was afoot. There was also some stories about Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and Bank of England, that uh, he was suddenly... We had reported previously that he had been advising some of the cabinet ministers Mm -hmm. uh, on policy, but this went to the stories went a little further, saying he was directly advising Mr. Trudeau, which, you know, it looks pretty strange because that's a job that normally Mr. Morneau would be doing. So uh, for all of those reasons, uh, um, not a total surprise when, when we got the news on, on Monday. Well, of course. And, and to keep in mind, friends, the Globe and Mail was the, st- the newspaper that uh, broke the story on the SNC-Lavalin affair. You may remember back a year or more ago, the Prime Minister earnestly looking into the cameras and denying absolutely every word of the Globe and Mail's reporting, which turned out, Bill, to be bang on dead accurate. So here we are a year later with another scandal going on. We. And someone had to go under the bus. Uh, a lot of people were expecting the junior minister, Chad, from Ontario to be the uh, the candidate for the wheels of the bus, but that wasn't big enough. So uh, the uh, Mr. Morneau was was sacrificed. Uh, the the uh, you, you alluded to the the leaks that come out of the Prime Minister's office strategically when they want to get the word out, and so the leaks bill dealt specifically with some kind of clash over policy between Trudeau and Morneau that was going to be uh, you couldn't be reconciled. Do you have any idea if there was a policy clash or whether that was pure fabrication? So there's two, uh, to backtrack a little bit, so the the official line that uh, Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau gave for their, uh, for this decision on Monday mm. was that uh, Bill Morneau had decided that since he wasn't going to run again and because this recovery is going to take a long time, they should uh, have somebody new in place uh, to uh, be finance minister over the next several years. And he also said that Bill Morneau wanted to run for the uh, president, the head of the OECD, uh, an international economic body. Yep. And so that was the official line, but uh, the opposition wasn't buying it. They said, this looks like it's all about we, mm-hmm. um, our own uh, Globe Mail editorial board, which is usually quite reserved in its language, said the official explanation was uh, bull and didn't stop there. Right. Um, so there's a lot of skepticism about the official uh, explanation. And um, there's two possibilities out there. There's uh, we, and then there's the... Um, these policy issues. And, you know, I think there is some truth to both of those. And what is unclear is the weight of uh, how each of those played out in Mr. Trudeau's final decision, how much of it was we or how much of it was uh, policy decisions. Because I've talked to several people and it does sound like there were, in fact, a lot of policy differences on uh, the stimulus package, the size of it. Um, Bill Morneau's office uh, was frustrated that they were constantly being told what to do by the PMO's office. Uh, that's kind of the, the nature of the of the tension that PMO wanted to move quickly and, and with uh, bigger projects, bigger spending, and Morno and his people wanted to slow things down, have things studied by the department, uh, etc. So that was kind of the nature of it. Um, uh, we reported midweek a little bit of the behind the scenes on this. Mm-hmm. So, um, the Globe on, I guess, the Tuesday before the resignation um, 
had the kind of the first story talking about uh, policy issues on everything from EI to a bunch of other uh, stimulus package problems or programs. So that was the first story. Um, What we reported this week is that immediately after seeing that story, Bill Morneau called Justin Trudeau directly, and uh, sources said Bill Morneau was of the view that he believes those leaks were orchestrated by the Prime Minister's office and, and wanted them to stop. And so that call happened uh, the, the Tuesday. Then by Saturday, uh, those kinds of stories did not stop. Bloomberg had uh, another story t- talking about uh, citing sources, talking about policy disagreements. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday, Reuters, another business uh, agency, um, had a similar story. Sources saying that uh, the two were, were fighting over policy. That led to the Monday morning face-to-face meeting between the two men at Rideau Cottage, which is the Prime Minister's uh, official residence, while 24 Sussex is uh, not operable. And um, from what I'm told, the the talk was mostly just on the timing of the resignation at that point. Uh, They decided Morneau would do the surprise uh, announcement that night. It was close to seven, I think, by the time he got out there to the reporters and gave his version of the story, and then Trudeau spoke the next day. So... um, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> Lots more happened this week, but we can get to that. Oh, no kidding, but but that's a, <laughs> a, a momentous uh, change in government. And, Bill, I need to take a break, but just before we do, yeah. uh, during all of this spending spree to the tune of 375 or more billion dollars, uh, the government, of course, needing to react quickly in an, a, a critical uh, emergency-type situation, uh, got a little carried away with the spending, as we'll discuss. Uh, uh, but Morneau was thought by many to be, uh, quote, the only adult in the room when it came time to some kind of supervision over all of that money going out all at once. So without that, it would suggest that there's a major spending spree in the offing. Would you agree? That's... Uh certainly how it's looking like those stories about the policy disagreements was the that was the background was that uh, Trudeau's and his people wanted to do even more and and Trudeau's public comments this week after announcing Christopher Freeland as finance minister was along those lines that they wanted to do more um, we know Trudeau's former right-hand man Jerry Butts is uh, working on this project like called Build Back Better with a bunch of environmentalists where they're putting, uh, advocating for a very large uh, stimulus package with uh, an environmental focus. So that's what's hovering in the air as, uh, as we look towards uh, a throne speech coming up in September. Now, ominous. Some would say that is an ominous thing hanging over us all. Joined from Ottawa by the Globe and Mills, Bill Curry. We're talking about the changes, of course, that happened. Another epic week in Canadian politics with the resignation of Bill Morneau as finance minister, replaced by Christian Freeland. And uh, Bill, uh, just to finish that thought out, uh, Mr. Morneau not only resigned his position in cabinet, he resigned his seat in the House of Commons. Is Mark Carney likely to be installed in that seat soon? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know for sure, but uh, from what I've heard, uh, whatever uh, was percolating with Mark Carney has cooled. uh, Yeah, I don't think people are expecting him to run. Um, um, Some of the reports suggest that his preference was to run in Ottawa if if there was uh, something open, but there is nothing open in Ottawa. Uh, He doesn't really have any ties to Toronto, personally, so... um, yeah, I, it's we'll see. I guess he's never commented on the record about any of this stuff. Okay. So uh, 
He's gone quiet. He currently lives in Ottawa. So uh, we shall see, but I don't think he's running. We'll see. Okay, so with the prorogation of Parliament, uh, some would say, the cynics in the country would say, that was specifically to shut down the committees who were getting far too close to the government uh, tracking the Wee scandal and just peeling back. And you're in the financial business, Bill. You know about layers and layers and layers of the onion. And the more you peel away, the more you discover. And this Wee thing is certainly proving to be one of those situations. And along with all of the the uh, the Kielberger uh, situation and the Wee scandal, now we're hearing that the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, uh, her husband has uh, also been lobbying not as a registered lobbyist to uh, make the government to have the government make changes to the wage subsidy law which would benefit his employer he's in private practice but of course happens to be connected to the prime minister's office through the chief of staff and apparently some backdoor efforts going on there what do you know about that yeah this is a whole separate story that uh i wrote a little bit about earlier this month and then uh, it kind of broke open uh, friday yeah and so uh, Rob Silver is Katie Telford's husband. Katie Telford is the chief of staff of the prime minister. People might recognize um, Rob Silver. Before the liberals were in power, he was a regular kind of liberal strategist on political panels. Mm-hmm. If you watched uh, CBC uh, Supper Hour News World channels, he'd be uh, on there. Um, so he is a kind of a liberal strategist in his own right. And he had been a, a registered lobbyist right up until the Trudeau government uh, formed. And at that time, he said, look, this is not tenable for me to continue to be a lobbyist with the federal government while my spouse is in the top position in this, this government. So I'm leaving Crestry Strategies where he worked. I'm not going to be doing any of these lo- this lobbying. I'm just going to do other things. So right. that's how things were left for the last four years. And then in January, he got a job as a senior vice president president with a company called MCAP, which is a, an independent uh, mortgage-based company. And at that time, uh, we're told from PMO, Katie Telfer put up an ethics screen to keep her separate from those, uh, so anything involved in that company. Sure. And, and we're hearing from Silver's uh, team that he also reached out to the lobbying commissioner to talk about rules. But um what the stories that came out Friday, first by Vice News, and we also uh, confirmed some of this, um, is that he, Silver, uh, who is not currently, as he said, a registered lobbyist, did reach out to senior people in the PMO, Mike McNair, a policy guy, uh, and two people in Bill Morneau's office, trying to get uh, the federal wage subsidy chain. Did we just lose you there, Bill? Oh, wait a second. Uh, we, uh, right right in the middle of a very important uh, moment, uh, the line just absolutely dropped out. Uh, and, the, and the story, of course, is uh, Robert Silver, uh, the, the lobbyist or the former lobbyist, uh, and his new attempts to influence the government of Canada uh, on matters that might affect his current employer. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can reconnect with Bill uh, as uh, w- this goes forward. That would be something uh, as... 
the newspapers, the Globe and Mail, Vice and others, National Post and others, have been reporting over the weekend as this story continues to unfold, this would clearly be the kind of event that would immediately go forward to the committee that is uh, currently investigating the Wee scandal. This is not necessarily directly related, but nonetheless, it it would certainly not pass the scrutiny of the committee as something to ignore. And so the committee, of course, has been prorogued along with Parliament. Again, this is the the real reason. I know we're going to talk about Build Back Better and Gerald Butts and his non-business committee of people who want to redo the Canadian economy. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the committees and the nature of their investigations and the proximity to the government that they were uh, achieving. In other words, they were getting pretty close to the bone. Uh, They were shut down. That's what proroguing parliament, that's what this reset really is all about. Shut down the committees. And uh, with that investigation terminated, these new revelations that Bill was talking about uh, with the Prime Minister's uh, Chief of Staff's husband attempting to lobby others um, would have been immediately put before the committee and uh, that is not going to happen. At least until Parliament is reconvened in late September, there'll be a throne speech and presumably another tactic to avoid the committees to be reconvened. I regret the loss of, of the dropout of the call. Uh, Bill, are you back with us? Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, no problem. We've got one yeah. minute. Unfortunately, we've got one minute left. Uh, and, and I was talking about the committees having been shut down. That's the real reason from where I'm sitting, my opinion only. Uh, this, this whole thing is about shutting down the investigation around we. Do you think this revelation you were describing about uh, Robert Silver would have immediately gone to one of those committees? I think so, because there was some other, uh, another contract involving his company that the committee was already planning to investigate. So, And one thing about prorogation that kind of got lost in all of this is that, um, you know, Trudeau could have still had a throne speech on the 23rd and waited until the day before or two days before to actually prorogue. That is a pretty common way that prime ministers have prorogued in the the past. So the fact that he prorogued immediately, uh, you know, cancelled all of those committee investigations and he has not given an explanation as to why he chose to prorogue immediately, you know, you know, if it's not for reasons of cancelling the committee, he has not given another reason that, uh, you know... And I wouldn't expect one either. Unfortunately, I'm afraid we're out of time. <laughs> Bill, great to talk to you again. We appreciate this very much, and we must do it again. It's not going to get any less exciting okay. going forward, that's for sure. Thanks, Bill. It's time now to check in with the our friends of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It's always a pleasure to welcome Laura Jones to the program. Laura is the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer with CFIB, here to talk to us this morning about the very recently announced changes to EI and the CERB. Laura, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on again, Sterling. Oh, it's a pleasure, Laura, always. Uh, Let's uh, take a look at the official CFIB reaction to the employment insurance changes announced by the feds just a couple of days ago. A kind of a combination of uh, some good and some bad. Flesh it out for us, please. Yeah, I think the official uh, reaction summarized would be some good news, but we're worried. Mm -hmm, Um, And so let me unpack that a little bit. Sure. Um, In terms of the good news, um, so it looks like, at least for now, the 
changes are temporary, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but that's good news. Mm-hmm. Um, some more good news, freezing EI premiums for, for two years, that's a good thing. And that's a good thing for employers and employees. So both employers and employees pay premiums on EI, and those premiums are frozen for two years. So, um, you know, now is just not the right time. I think most, uh, at least most small businesses agree that now is not the right time to be increasing taxes. So so that's a good news. Sure. Um, and also um, some of the temporary uh, benefits that were made available to the self-employed um, will continue. And uh, for right now, for the for the purposes of getting through this emergency um, that we're in with respect to COVID-19, um, that's considered uh, good news. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I flip now to a minute, to a minute of, about, you know, the things that we that worry us a lot is that there's a throne speech coming. And our big concern is that, you know, some of the what what we think should be temporary changes um, may be made permanent or there may be some bigger changes coming to the EI system. And we believe that um, there shouldn't be any permanent changes made to EI without some fairly extensive consultation um, with employers and because employers pay a good share of the bill. So I said a minute ago that employees and employers both pay. They both pay, but it's not a 50-50 split. Employers pay more than employees. And so, you know, there may be some good reasons for changing some things in the EI system, but our biggest worry is that the government will go forward without enough consultation. And there's almost unanimous, you, you, you know, you and I often talk about the surveying we do of small businesses yes. and we're always surveying them of their opinion because the collective wisdom really, honestly, Sterling is better than anything I might have to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, the collective wisdom on this one is almost unanimous. There needs to be consultation because that could add big, big costs into the system for, for business owners. You know, once we get beyond that two year freeze that I just mentioned. Well, exactly. And, and I think the thing that is, most surprising about the change uh, or the big change to the rules is the the number of worked weeks required before an individual qualifies for EI benefits. And as I understand it, Laura, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will, uh, as I understand it, uh, 120 hours of work over the past year uh, will allow you to be able to collect EI benefits for up to 26 weeks. Is that Basically, that's that's the nuts and bolts of it, isn't it? That's right, Sterling, and you're raising another big concern we have that, you know, for the recovery, one of the weird things we're hearing um, is that, you know, at the same time, businesses are struggling, but but many of them are struggling to try and get back to more normal conditions, and some businesses that are trying to rehire their employees are, are having a hard time because, um, you know, some might prefer, some might need to stay on CERB, so I want to be clear about that. It's not, you know, but there are some who are just saying, you know, actually, I can make more on CERB or I prefer CERB. That's particularly true for part-time workers because 120 hours um, last year, that's about three and a half weeks of work right. um, or an average, just because some of these numbers don't always like compute with people, that's an average of like three hours a week that you'd be working. Now, my son, who's 16, has one shift a week with a restaurant um, washing dishes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he, in theory, could qualify for this. And so it's just... 
and for $10,000 of benefits. So what we don't want to do with the EI system is make it more attractive to be on EI than it is to work. And it's a tricky balance, Sterling, because, of course, and particularly right now, we want to make sure that, you know, people who need to stay home um, for health reasons or uh, to look after uh, loved ones are, you know, are feeling like they're able to do that. And we want to have an EI system as a safety net for those who can't find work. But we have to find the right balance. Is there not already a condition under receiving the CERB where the recipient, Laura, is uh, is also allowed to earn on the side, if you will, up to $1,000 without um, in any way reducing the amount of CERB benefit flowing to that individual? Yes, that's right. So, you know, you can get your $2,000 uh, monthly benefit and work um, up to 1,000 hours. The challenge with that is that um, it's not graduated, and so there are a lot of people who are, you know, who are saying, "Well, you know, it, 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 look, people are looking to maximize under the under the, you know, under these constraints, and sure. that's um, that's fine. But what if you're an employer and you need someone to work, you know, um, to to be earning, you know, fifteen hundred or or two thousand? It still may make more sense to you as an employee. Um, to try and say, no, no, I'll work up to $1,000, but no more. And so there are some things in the system that need to be, that clearly need to be addressed, and we need to create better incentives. There's no such thing as perfect. You know, forever there's been EI, I think we agree, is a good system, is a safety net as a society. Um, But, you know, forever there's been, no matter what you do, there's going to be some abuse, but we just try and keep that, we want to try and keep that to a minimum. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, because a lot of your um, members of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Laura, are indeed very small businesses. What about individuals who are their own business, self-employed? Where do they play into all of this, or how does that affect them? Yeah, it's interesting, and this may this may sound a little um, um, counterintuitive to some, but of course, during the, the 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 COVID crisis, when businesses were completely shut down and many had no way of making income, of course, right. this was you know really um, important to have um, the self-employed have access to um, uh, to the CERB benefit, and you know CERB and EI like. CERB is basically transitioning to EI. Mm -hmm. So now there's a big question about whether that should be permanent. You know, should the self-employed now, um, you know, have to pay into EI? Um, Right now, you don't have to pay in because you're not eligible to get uh, benefits. And it makes sense as a self-employed, can you lay yourself off, for example? You know, there's some some things that are, you know, it doesn't really make sense. Again, um, I always like to rely on the collective wisdom of small business owners on these things. So on our last survey, we, we did put that question to them. And there's not a whole lot of appetite among the self-employed um, to be included in EI. Um, and, you know, that's one of those questions that the government, we're, we're certainly hoping, will not come out um, and just announce that that's what's happening without talking to small business owners and understanding why they have some very serious concerns around that. Because any of the changes that you make to these systems um, can have some pretty big unintended consequences. And the big worry for small business owners is that you're going to add billions of dollars of costs into this system because ultimately businesses pay for a good share of it. Um, that makes it, you know, less, um, uh, that makes them less able actually to employ people going forward. So it's kind of a 
the opposite of what we might want to happen. And that's what we have. That's why we have to look at these things carefully. Yeah, Laura, I need to take a break. But just before I do, you were talking about your your great hope that going forward before this becomes uh, law and, and practice, that there's more consultation between the government and the people to whom these benefits are going to be directed and, and all of the players involved, like the business owners across the country, to this point. How much consultation has taken place at that level? Well, um, less than we'd like on some of the programs. Um, You know, CECRO, the rent relief would be a good example of that. Now we have a brand new finance minister, and um, early indications are she's going to be doing more reach outs. She certainly, she called us very, very early, um, reached out and, and wants to set up a meeting. So, you know, I think that that's, that's a good sign, and this will likely be, I mean, there's some big tests for our new finance minister coming up around this area, and I think small business owners are hoping that um, there'll be more receptivity from Ottawa um, around um, some of these programs. Having said that, around the wage subsidy, I think they've been fairly responsive. Um, so it's been a bit of a mixed bag, but I, I think uh, we could do a little better than what we're doing right well, now. At least it's encouraging that you got an email asking for a meeting. That's a good step, isn't it? Actually, it was a phone call. Well, so there you I'll, go. I'll tell you, I give her, I give her props for you know, it's it's uh, you know, look uh, for a finance minister to to you know reach out very early on their job on the job to um, a big small business association. That doesn't happen every day, and I think that was an important message uh, to us and to our members that um, this is going to be and to small businesses more generally that this you know that that their concerns are important. Um, but that's just a very preliminary first step. Actions obviously speak a lot louder than words. Laura Jones on the line. Ms. Jones is with the Canadian Federation of Business. She is in fact the executive vice president of that operation and their chief strategic officer. And we're talking about the recent changes, very recent changes announced to employment insurance. And we did open the lines, Laura, and we do have a caller and I wanted to include Jeremy in our conversation going forward. Jeremy, good morning. Hey, how you doing, Sterling? All right, thanks. What's up? Uh, good. I'm a small business owner. I have a simple company. It's landscaping contracts. We cut grass, hedge trim, all this sort of stuff in okay. the Fraser Valley region. And it's super hard to hire and find good staff. And uh, honestly, sort of aside, the whole employment insurance program is a system of entitlement, I call it. And I've actually done interviews um, for people that come in. And, oh, I'm just here to do an interview because I have to do this to maintain my EI or they'll work a couple of weeks. It's just, it, it's a game, frankly. And the SERP, to talk about that for two seconds, they shouldn't even be giving this SERP to someone that doesn't uh, pay rent and kind of live independently. If you're 18, 19, 23 even, and you live with mom and dad and you don't pay rent, you shouldn't be getting a SERP check. You should be getting a job. I got three or four jobs out though right now. Very few people apply or they come for interviews and then they, uh, they end up not accepting a job that's been offered to them because they're getting government money. And it's a system of entitlement, and it's a big system also just for Trudeau for vote buying, because that's really all he's doing here. All right, Jeremy, I appreciate the very passionate call this morning. And, uh, Laura, this is uh, the kind of sentiment, as the vice president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, you hear all day, every day. Yeah, Jeremy's not alone. There's a lot of frustration out there that, um, you know, it's very hard to um, find good staff who are willing to work. Um, I'm hearing it and, you know, Jerry, Jeremy's landscaping contracts, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that a lot from 
sectors, um, businesses like Jeremy's. And um, this is what we're worried about. You know, if you make the system even more generous, you're going to um, exacerbate um, some of those problems. One of the things we're watching carefully is, and it's a little bit unclear right now, what happens if your old employer offers you your job back? Right. Um, are you, if you don't take the job, are you still eligible for, um, for, for CERB? and uh, ultimately for EI, because CERB's been extended for a month, but the government's basically transitioning it back to, um, to EI. And, you know, we think that the answer to that should be that, you know, if you are um, offered your old job back, you should be required to take it, unless, of course, you've got, you know, an, you know some kind of health um, condition that, right. that prevents you from doing that, or you're, you're required to look after um, others. But, yeah, J- Jeremy expressed it, kind of the frustration that we're hearing a lot of, and this is why we're quite worried about what's going to happen on um, later in September when there's a throne speech and what the government might do with this program. Well, the uh, the whole uh, thrust of uh, the government's policy, and we just had the, the Globe and Mail's financial correspondent Bill Curry on with his last half hour, and he was talking about this whole build back better. This is the new theme of the Trudeau government. This is what Gerald Butts's uh, recovery commission is supposed to be all about. Uh, as I understand it, there aren't very many business members on Mr. Butts's committee of reshaping the Canadian economy, and that appears to be it, what the master plan is shaping up to be. They they appear to be. He wants to go big. He wants to go green. Christian Freeland says we need a new New Deal. There's a lot in the works here, Laura. There, that that's why we're worried, Sterling. Like it's you know, what does this mean? Who are you talking to to put together these plans? Because. You know, often what might sound good in theory in a textbook just doesn't is a flop when it comes to actually, you know, um, having it work um, on the ground for the Cana- for for the Canadian economy. And you know, we need to be. I think we need to be very realistic. We need to be pragmatic. I think jobs and getting the recovery going um, is absolutely critical right now. I'm really worried about what I'm seeing um, in the small business sector. Only about, you know, one in three businesses are back to normal sales, a little bit less than that, actually. Um, And, you know, I thought by now, Sterling, that we'd be a little higher than that. Um, That worries me. And a lot of businesses are okay right now, but when you talk to them, it's like, well, thank goodness for the wage subsidy. They're okay because of the wage subsidy. We need them to be okay, period. And um, that's happening a lot slower than than um, certainly than I would have hoped. And so I think that really has to be um, our national preoccupation is how to get the economy back on track, because the economy without a strong economy, um, social programs suffer. Um, ultimately, we can't all be government employees. We can't all be on CERB. Like that, that doesn't work long term. So um, we need to be productive and get back to, um, you know, get get back to having a strong private sector economy. One of the reasons we like having you on the program on Sunday mornings, Laura, is because we have the benefit of the most recent surveying activity. You always get all of your data gathered on Friday evenings and process it over the weekend. What's new this weekend? What are you surveying all of those many thousands of members all over Canada uh, about this weekend, and what are they telling you? 
Well, as, as we've talked about some of the results with respect to, um, you know, a strong desire that business owners have to be consulted, that there shouldn't be any big changes to EI uh, done without a, a, a fairly major consultation. They want to have their voice heard. And I think the same would be true for just economic recovery in general. One of the other interesting things we did um, on this survey is we kind of broke out, a, you know, I, I always give you the numbers like 28% are back to normal sales, yeah. 40% are, are fully staffed, and and 66% are fully open. And by the way, the fully open, that actually is, a lot of that is about labor. You know, restaurants have shorter hours now, um, often you'll see, and a lot of that, part of that is customers, but part of that is staffing. So um, that being fully open, there are a lot of businesses that are partly open, um, but only 66% back to where they were pre, pre-COVID in terms of being open. So those numbers are there. But one of the things that we did this week was we looked at the difference between what's going on in rural areas and what's going on in the kind of the urban centers, mm-hmm. so the downtown cores. And not surprisingly, um, you know, you are more likely to be at permanent risk of closure. You are less likely to be back to normal sales if you are in an urban center, a downtown core, which is kind of, you know, the opposite of what we, we typically might uh, see where rural um, centers can be uh, quite negatively affected. That's right, uh, yeah. By by downtown, but you know, you think of an urban center and you think, oh, businesses don't have trouble with their customers. But the combination of office towers being emptied out and no, you know, and, and international tourism being dead has been really, really difficult for your downtown coffee shops. Never mind your, you know, salad bars and oh, yeah. quick, uh, takeout joints and retail. So. Our Small Business Everyday campaign continues, and one of our challenges this week is to, hey, if you've got a business you love that happens to be downtown and you haven't been to the office, um, maybe make an, a special effort to try and uh, support that business. Because as I say, you know, you have to support your favorite businesses today or they won't be there tomorrow. Laura Jones, thanks for this. Always a pleasure. We do appreciate your time on the weekends, especially on Sundays. Thanks so much. Well, election time in the United States is November 3rd. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the air waves of CKNW. He is the Distinguished Professor of History from American University in Washington, D.C. Alan Lichtman on the line with a prediction for November 3rd, 2020. <laughs> Professor Lichtman, Alan, welcome back. It's good to talk to you, sir. It's been a long time. Same here. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, talk to us about the 13 keys before you give us your prediction for 2020. You have a system, Alan, that you've been using for a long time called the 13 keys. What is that? Yes, I've been using it since I predicted Ronald Reagan's re-election in April of 1982, nearly three years ahead of time, and in the midst of what was then the worst recession since the Great Depression. So it's a run of almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. Now, how am I able to do this? I'm not a magician. I'm an historian. And the keys are based on the insight that American presidential elections are essentially votes up, or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. So forget the polls, ignore the pundits. Don't look at who's up, who's down day to day. Keep your eye on the big picture, which is what the keys gauge. Things like midterm election results, third parties, long and short-term economy, social unrest, scandal, policy change, foreign policy successes and failures. And the way the system works, And the reason it's been successful for 40 years, including predicting Donald Trump in 2016, is that it's a very simple decision rule. Six keys and you're out. Six or more 
negative keys, the party holding the White House loses. And so you've uh, added it all up. And by the way, do those keys, and you talked about various social uh, and political factors contributing to the, the calculation. How about a pandemic? We've only had one other one, and that was 1918. So it would be before the keys were developed. How did that factor into your decision, Alan? The pandemic factors in in that the pandemic has caused economic chaos in the United States, mm-hmm. an economic calamity which turns two keys. And remember, it takes only six to count out the party holding the White House, plus it contributes to social unrest, which feeds into a third key, even though I obviously don't have a pandemic key. We haven't had enough of them. Sure. So uh, based on your calculations and the model that has been successful for you for 40 years, what's your prediction for this November? At the end of 2019, things were looking pretty good for Donald Trump. He was down only four keys. And then, of course, we get hit with the pandemic, the cries for social and racial justice. And I'm sitting, standing here now in my study, looking at a letter on the copy of the Washington Post where I predicted Trump's win. And it says, Professor, congrats, good call, and big Sharpie letters, Donald J. Trump. So he acknowledged my prediction, but he didn't understand that when you're running as an incumbent, it is governing, not campaigning that counts. And when confronted with the pandemic and the cries for social and racial justice, instead of dealing with them substantively, he reverted to his challenger playbook of trying to talk his way out of them, which doesn't work. As a consequence, he lost three more keys, the short-term economic key, because we're in a recession, the long-term economic key because the negative growth has pulled his average down so far, Mm -hmm. and the social unrest key because of what's raging across the land. So, through no fault of anyone but himself, Donald Trump went from four keys down in the likely win to seven keys down where he stands now, one more than is needed to predict his defeat. So my final prediction is, that Donald Trump will become the first president since Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush in 1992 to lose a re-election bid. No chance for a last-minute sprint to the finish line to upset uh, your prediction? Well, you know, I, I can't predict unpredictable events, but I can say in well over 100 years, there's never been a last-minute uh, event to change the keys Because the keys are the big picture. You don't change the economy on the dime or the state of foreign policy. You don't erase a scandal. (laughs) So are you you concerned that the president would accept a defeat on its face? I'm not so so much concerned with that. I'm concerned with two other things. You know, as you point out, I've been doing this for 40 years. I'm 73 years old. But I still get butterflies in my stomach every time I do this because I'm putting myself right on the line. As you know, Mm -hmm. and the two things that really keep me up at night, one is voter suppression. And we've seen what's happening with the post office, with Trump's attack on mail-in voting. It's very worrisome. And secondly? And the second thing that keeps me up at night is Russian intervention. They're back. They probably learned a lot in four years. They may even try to get into our registration roles. And, you know, he basically said it, and he's already doing it. Trump will welcome and exploit any Russian intervention. These are things beyond the keys or any prediction system that bother me. 
and I have to leave it there, Alan. I'm fresh out of time, and as always, sir, very grateful for yours. Thanks for being with us, and doubtless we'll talk again before November 3rd, but we do appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. Sure, you know where to find me. Uh, we Take sure care. do. Professor Alan Lickman joining us from American University in Washington, D.C. Our next guest is the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments at UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. He's also the founding chair of the UBC Urban Design Program and wrote a column recently in the TIE entitled, If We Care About the Homeless, We'll Build Lots of Tiny Homes fast. Our guest is Professor Patrick Condon. Patrick, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Great to be here. It's good to have you with us. Uh, you, uh, The subheader to your article in the TIE, many U.S. cities are showing us how. Vancouver and other B.C. cities can't pretend they don't know a solution. So let's talk about those cities in America that are doing tiny homes uh, correctly uh, from your perspective. Well, first of all, there's no no ideal solution to what is a difficult problem. Uh, certainly having no homeless or having the homeless have, current homeless have access to standard housing would be the better solution. But in the absence of that, many cities in the United States, because they haven't gotten the funding for, you know, something something more substantial, have on their own decided in the absence of state or federal support to just go ahead and create shelters. And that's the idea of the tiny home, which is there, there's a variety of different types, but one of, you know, the most common is something about the size of a, a medium sized RV. Uh, sometimes they, they have heat, sometimes they don't, but this, they can range in price from uh, $10,000 to a uh, hundred thousand dollars if they're fully equipped with bathrooms and uh, kitchens and so forth. And it's a, it's a better solution certainly than what we have right now at Strathcona park where, you know, the homeless are there basically consuming the entire park. Mm -hmm. Nobody's happy. They're not happy. The people in the neighborhood are not happy and so forth. So that's, that's the basic idea. So what's the, what would the square footage of a typical tidy home be? About 200 square feet, about the same size as a parked car. Okay. Uh, we do, however, have some initiative underway, Patrick, here in Vancouver with respect to modular housing. Aren't we in the process of converting former shipping containers into some kind of housing scenario? Uh, they may be the same size as a shipping container, but they're not shipping containers. They're about... Those are good, and if we and if the province and the federal government would come forth with a lot more of those, that would certainly be a a better option. But those cost one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per unit. Oh my! Okay, for a temporary structure. So uh, we don't see the. I don't see those forthcoming in the immediate future. And currently, we have two to three hundred people sitting in Strathcona Park, and they're, they're soon going to be in the rain and the mud and so forth. It's just not a great situation. So let's talk about where these uh, tiny house develop. Okay, so the modular housing model that Vancouver is using goes for about 150 grand a pop, and a tiny home could go for as little as 10000 each. So there's your there's your differential right there. But where are you yeah, gonna, that's where, a big, big uh, no, difference. Uh, no kidding. There's 15 to 1 uh, if, you, if you look at the, at the $10,000 price tag. Patrick, where are you going to put all these? tiny homes well in in seattle and portland uh they tend to go in 
vacant parcels, often often parking lots in various parts of the city, usually in industrial or uh, or commercial zones where they won't be in conflict with uh, people's neighborhood parks and so forth, which is an advantage both for the people in the neighborhoods as well as for the homeless because they don't like the conflict either, it turns out. They're often put on relatively small parcels. The smaller, the better, actually, because if you have a small group of homeless, they can create a nice, a better community and self-monitor and avoid problems like the stabbing that they just had down in Strathcona Park. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're surrounded by a chain-link fence with the residents only ha- having the keys, so no, no strangers can come in and go out and so forth, which creates a much safer atmosphere. And they're usually managed by a church group or a non-governmental organization or some combination of the two, as well as involving the community of, of residents okay, so we in might, their own self-management. Yeah, yeah we, go ahead. We, no, no, we've identified the fact that it would be advantageous for all or uh, to uh, locate the, uh, uh, say, a village, we'll call it a village, a cluster of tiny homes in, in a, an industrial uh, section of town. Would you suggest that this be on uh, private land, or does the city own enough land already scattered around town to be able to sustain this stuff uh, by itself? Well, I believe the latter is true. It would be wonderful to see a, a map, which the city has never produced, of where all the city-owned land is. The city currently has a, nearly a three, $3 billion inventory in their property endowment uh, fund, which includes a lot of parcels of land, some of which are in industrial and commercial areas. Right. So, so, so my, my sense is certainly we do have enough land for a number of these villages. And based, again, on the American models that you use as, as your example in the article you've written, uh, do did those cities, Seattle and Portland and others, and there's quite a list, did those cities put their tiny home uh, clusters on their own land, or did they rent land? How did they make the accommodation for land? There's a combination of, of ways to do it, which is quite interesting. Sometimes a church, which, you know, our churches feel the urgency of this, I think, quite strongly. And uh, they often have parking uh, parking lots that are not used. So one model is to put them on a church parking lot. Another model is on city parcels that have been taking over for tax purposes and so forth. That's how the city ends up with a lot of land. And, uh, and, and in the case of Portland, they also have an interesting program where individual residents who own a home, uh, who own a home, and have a backyard parcel on a lane, volunteer the, the, the rear end of their parcel to put one tiny home and share their own parcel with someone who needs, who needs help. And that, in that case, they can interview the person and make sure it's going to be okay. So there's a lot of different ways to use these tiny structures. And uh, the responsibility for all of this, it, 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 at least as I read the article, is uh, centered and, and almost entirely on the city, the local municipal government. Does the province, uh, do the province and the feds have any role in all of this beyond possibly writing a check or two? Well, sometimes the the, the, fed, the federal and provincial funding stream goes for goes to the social services that support these. But you're right; generally, the the structure itself and the management of it comes from the non governmental organization sector, the so called civic sector, and uh, and uh, uh, church groups and so forth in concert with the city. 
and they typically are managed by uh, some cooperative relationship between the city, which might be the leaseholder of these lands, and some non-governmental organization that has the capacity to provide uh, the organizational services that these places will inevitably need. So now talk back to the back to the description of the the tiny home itself for approximately 200 square feet uh, about a cost of about $10,000 per unit. Now in that low priced unit, what uh, aside from a roof and a lock on the door, which is critical, what other amenities are in the lowest priced version of the tiny home, Patrick? The lowest priced version you, you've said it effectively. The, the, the most important amenity is a roof over your head and a door you can lock so you don't have to move your stuff around and worry that it's going to get stolen every day, which is a big, big issue. So so you're protected in terms of, you know, your safety and your privacy and as well as your, your stuff not getting stolen. Sure. You're, you're protected against uh, wind and rain at the very low end that would be it and then you would uh you know then you would have a bed and you know a few pieces of furniture in there if you could scrounge them together or if they were if they were donated through a charitable organization which they often are that's at the low end as you move up the scale in terms of if you have the the additional resources you can insulate and put sheetrock on the inside uh somewhat more somewhat more resources you can put internal heating and electricity and then at the highest end, you can put the plumbing in, which would give you your own toilet, right. sanitary facilities, and so forth. But uh, the versions that you've been talking about that you're using as examples in those American cities, and Seattle is our closest, uh, is the city closest to us, and the one that we're most familiar with. What's a, what's a typical tiny home in Seattle? Uh, do they have the amenities, Patrick, or are they just a roof and a, and a lock? The most typical village will have a roof and a lock in, in the terms we're using this morning. Yes. And the, uh, and, the, and the sanitary facilities and the kitchens would be shared. So there would be one common building which would have showers and it would have a toilet or two, as well as a lounge area for people to come together and sit and talk and, uh, and a place to prepare food. So, so that's, that's the, I, I would say that's probably the most common model where the sanitary kitchen and lounge facilities are in common uh, in a central location. So, okay, so it's a combination of the private, uh, uh, secure uh, accommodation for the individual and a common uh, area for uh, sanitation and food. That's exactly right. Professor Patrick Condon is our guest. He is the founding chair of the UBC Urban Design Program, who wrote recently in the TIE, if we care about the homeless, we'll build lots of tiny homes fast. And goes on to say, don't be surprised to find this approach to serving the homeless costs far less than governments and charitable organizations that are currently committed to spending. In fact, Seattle maintains the cost of the tiny homes per person is only about a third of what it costs to house people in shelters. Patrick, how is that possible? Do the math for us. Well, the shelters require, you know, a very uh, substantial building, you know, with all the bells and whistles in the building. So, as you know, the cost per square foot of a building space in Vancouver is incredible. Sure, of course. They're selling out, selling buildings for fifteen hundred bucks a square foot. So, do the math yourself. Mm-hmm. Plus, they have uh, a, a higher staffing cost. I think that's probably the the main problem. 
because there's people in there to open it up, to close it, to make sure it's managed well overnight and all that kind of thing. So between that and other kinds of services that are required in that kind of situation, the tiny homes end up being less money because they're cheaper structures on the one hand. And also the villages tend to be more self-managing than do the shelters. So now, how does it work? Does a person uh, who applies to the program, I assume there's a waiting list, as there must be in every major city, uh, and once your name comes to the top of the list, are you assigned a tiny home? Is that how it works? Yeah, basically you're assigned, and I think ideally you would want to have as many of these little things as you needed so you wouldn't have to have people sleeping on the sidewalks or in parks in our city. Uh, But you're assigned one, and effectively it's yours because they're so... You know, because they're basically very low cost, uh, the concern about, you know, whether it, I mean, the ownership, the sense of ownership goes with the house. So uh, many of these tiny structures become, you know, homes for uh, the residents and they can put pictures on the walls and they can have flower boxes, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so it's a very different situation because they're so, the cost of them is so low, you don't have to worry about uh, people coming and going, you know, they can really put down roots. And uh, it, it's there is no ideal solution to this problem. Let me put, put it to you that way, Stuart, so everybody understands where I'm coming from and where others are coming from. But this is a good short-term solution to a problem which is quite severe in our city. And, and you do go a little further than that, actually, because, again, I'm quoting from your article, if we instinctively say no to this, we're being miserly and callous, calling us what we deserve to be called. Uh, there he is. There's no other way to interpret a lack of political will to investigate this option working in so many other places. Why do you think politicians look Locally, our homeless situation is no better or worse than any other major West Coast city, even restricting it to that zone. Why are local politicians dragging their feet on this? I think there's two big reasons. One is that uh, I've come, well, let me put it this way, Stuart. I've come to this position reluctantly, and I'm reluctant because it would be better if you could have better solutions to this issue if people had more substantial places to go or if nobody ended up on the street. Yeah. So I think people are reluctant to go and say living in what some people call a shack is okay. You know, some people say that, well, all this is is creating barrios in our city. That's one one problem is that people who care about the homeless often often will not accept something less than a perfect solution. The other The other problem really is that at the level of municipal governments, municipal governments have long been in the habit of expecting the provincial level of government or, and or the federal go- level of government to solve this problem and send letters into the province and send letters off to Ottawa from our own mayor's office saying, you've got to do something. And and I am personally, and I think other people who are, in, who are agreeing with with this position are feeling a little frustrated with that situation because the problem is in the cities and the solution is also in the cities. I think, and I think it's time we acknowledge that. Well, you know, and we have in, in Vancouver, the the sort of compounded problem, Patrick, of this game of ping pong being relentlessly played between city hall and the park board uh, in terms of jurisdiction and who ultimately calls the shots in, in this situation. And that all the, all that does is dilute the possibility of a solution. 
Yeah, I think it's a dysfunction. I mean, it's a serious problem. It's a very difficult problem. The people who are on the streets are occupy a number of categories. Some of them are disabled. Some of them are drug addicted and disabled. Some of them are just drug addicted. Some of them just have been bounced out of their couch surfing condition because they don't have enough money to rent a place in this city where it costs it costs uh, eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a year just to pay your rent on a studio apartment here. So there's so it, it's a complicated situation and it's and it's evolving towards a more grave situation by the day it's time we actually did something about it but it, but it is a complicated one well it is and and you encourage the the reader in your article uh, to uh, as you've just indicated on the radio uh, sending letters and actual uh, contacting of uh, politicians and people in a position to make change is a very important part of the process do you feel there's a lot of that going on right now uh, well, I think the Strathcona uh, issue, you know, in the whack-a-mole where we're pushing these people from one park to another park throughout the city has galvanized a lot of public opinion, which is why the article has been spread around quite yeah. a bit. Uh, and uh, so I think that we are. One of the issues, though, that we, we're not there yet on is, unlike Seattle, where we're collaboration of non-governmental organizations and churches and the city and neighborhood groups came together to try to solve this problem and accept the idea of the tiny homes. I don't think we have the overarching organization yet and a group that's taking, you know, a positive sense of responsibility or opportunity to do this. I'm just a guy who, you know, I work at UBC, and this is my research area, and I throw an article out there. But I personally have no no power, and and I don't know of an organization that I can attach to uh, to to help on this one. Where I think there's thousands of people in the city and other cities nearby who want to do something about this, but we don't have the organization, and I await for. Uh, I wait for leadership on, on this score. As many of us do. Patrick Condon, thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time on a Sunday morning. Great conversation. We appreciate it very much. Our next guest uh, says uh, agrees with most of us who are really hoping for a recovery from COVID-19, preferably with a vaccine and a therapy program we can all get behind and get things back to as close as possible to what we remember as normal. We hope for that. Our next guest reminds us, however, that hope is not a strategy and goes on to add that reopening the economy too quickly could do more harm than good and we have an abundance of evidence from the next door neighbors to support that notion our next guest is scott McAlpine. he is the president of integrated analytics and research he is also a past president of douglas college and is with the new westminster chamber of commerce although it's that hat from integrated analytics and research scott that we need you to wear today to join us in our conversation about the economy good morning and welcome. Well, good morning, Sir Oden, and thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, let's talk about this uh, this whole business of recovering too quickly. We've seen in the United States the urgent, uh, re- the urging, rather, of the White House and the administration for the recovery to take place as quickly as possible. They wanted people back to work, get those companies back and running, and, of course, they have perhaps the highest COVID rate on Earth, and certainly the death rate in the United States is is tragic uh, and almost beyond belief. Uh, in part, 
exacerbated by this notion that reopening the economy will just make everything better. So we know that's not the answer. So what kind of approach are you recommending we take north of the 49th, Scott? Well, north of the border, I think we've done an extraordinarily good job so far on uh, balancing the need for economic recovery with the need to uh, protect the most vulnerable in society. That being said, there is going to be pressure and there is increasing pressure to open the economy. And I think that's the cautionary note that I want to uh, want to draw today. Uh, if we reopen too fast, we may, in fact, have to revert back to the very, very expensive uh, shutdown of the economy in order to protect the, uh, the capacity of the healthcare sure. system. Yeah. And what that's going to do, of course, is increase the federal expenditures, increase the debt load, and push the cost of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic off to the future. And that is going to be just absolutely tragic. So a cautious approach, slow and steady, as they say, wins the race. Okay, and uh, fair ball. And so far, the government, we don't know how effective the government has been yet. Scott, it's too early to, to, to tell. What we, can't, what we do know is the government has been doing what we pay them to do, which is govern or manage a crisis situation. The degree to which they've managed it effectively remains to be determined, but they are certainly uh, getting there uh, and getting those programs going, getting uh, cash to Canadians who are cash-strapped and so on. But as you've already mentioned, a consequence of this management so far has been an enormous acceleration of the national debt, and it doesn't appear to be in any way uh, ending soon. Well, no, and uh, it, it clearly won't end soon. Uh, we've seen the debt le- of Canada go up to $1.2 trillion at the federal level, and all in, uh, including the federal and the provinces, uh, we're at a debt-to-GDP ratio uh, hovering around 100%. The federal debt-to-GDP ratio is 49%, but all in, it's 100%. Last time we were here was in the mid-1990s. Uh, Paul Martin was the finance minister, mm-hmm. and uh, the federal expenditures on uh, servicing the debt were about a third of all government expenditures. And we're currently at about 7%, which is not too worrisome. But when you get up into that heavy uh, area of a third, what you are precipitating is a necessity to cut back on other programs. And what Paul Martin chose to do was cut back on transfers to the provinces uh, in healthcare, post-secondary education, and so on. And that's a situation that I don't think any of us want to see again. And so, uh, again, we have to be cautious and targeted in the expenditures that we're making on uh, COVID-19, and we have to be very, very careful that as we reopen the economy, we don't get too greedy and want to reopen it too fast. And as you correctly point out, south of the border, in fact, they never really shut it down. That's true. And, and you know, it's uh, it's tragic what's going on in the United States. Uh, their, uh, their COVID rates are proportionately at least five times worse than ours, if not more, and uh, they don't so show any signs of improvement. Sorry, go ahead. Canada showed some signs of improvement, but uh, we see uh, the caseload starting to increase again, at least in B.C. and some of the other provinces. And it's that that we have to be really, really cautious of and uh, try to flatten that curve one more time. 
And it's that one more time that's going to be uh, very difficult as we move into the fall. No question about that. Uh, and we do all remember the uh, the shock, the horror of some liberals across Canada when Mr. Martin in the mid-90s made those dramatic changes to the way uh, the provinces were funded. He had to make some serious cuts, and he did. This Prime Minister, on the other hand, has prorogued Parliament, or what was left of it, uh, until September and a new throne speech. And already, Scott, we're hearing much chatter and much uh, rumor uh, regarding, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the phrase, there it is, build back better. That's the new buzz phrase. And go big, go green. So far, that's all we know. But it does not suggest anything of the mindset that Paul Martin had to adopt at one point in his career. Yeah, it actually suggests exactly the opposite of what Paul Martin had. Now, uh, at the on the other side of it, Paul Martin also had a majority government. Mm-hmm. And the Liberals are currently sitting in the situation where they need the support of at least one other party in Parliament in order to hold on to, uh, tenuously, uh, to, uh, to government. And so the, uh, and we've seen that with Morneau's resignation, uh, that there's a little bit of a, cleavage, shall we say, in the Liberal Party, perhaps about those who want to go big, go green, mm-hmm. and those who want to impose some uh, some degree of fiscal discipline. And it's really anybody's guess which side is going to uh, prevail ultimately. But the signals would suggest that the Liberals are very interested in introducing a throne speech and perhaps into March a uh, federal budget that is going to take advantage of um, the increased expenditures that they've already had and try to pivot those to uh, to the green economy, to uh, much more of a social justice economy. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just how fast are we going to go there? And if we're in fact going to do that, um, then we better have a robust economic recovery uh, underneath us in order to finance. Scott McAlpine is on board as well. Mr. McAlpine is president of Integrated Analytics and Research. He's also a past president of Douglas College and a former political science professor. And it's with that hat on, among others, Scott, that I want to put this one to you. Uh, The notion of going big and going green. This is Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau just a few short days ago. This is where we're going with the throne speech in September. uh, This also very much includes the death of the petro sector, the oil and gas sector, as we know it. Uh, This could unleash a political firestorm, the likes of which Justin Trudeau, I suspect, can't even imagine. So far, it's just those cranky Albertans, they'll get over it. I doubt they will. What do you think? (laughs) Well, having lived in Alberta for about 30 years, uh, no, of course they won't get over it. Absolutely not. But let's uh, let's be careful here. Uh, going big and going green does not necessarily mean killing off the oil and gas sector immediately. I think we can see the future fairly clearly that uh, there's going to be a transition to uh, to clean energy and to renewables. Uh, but let's not forget that the federal government is a major investor in a pipeline, mm-hmm. yes. um, and that uh, clearly uh, there's there's no sense that uh, in the short term 
uh, Canada, uh, or the rest of the world for that matter, will uh, significantly reduce its uh, reliance on fossil fuels. And again, we're seeing increased demand for fossil fuels in uh, China, India, and uh, developing countries more generally. Uh, So I don't think that killing off the oil and gas industry is something that Trudeau is going to be doing in the short term. I think uh, reducing the reliance on fossil fuels and uh, reducing uh, CO2 emissions is something that he's very interested in. And I wonder the degree to which this, uh, you know, go big, go green is more rhetoric than it is uh, going to be a reality. And the other thing I can remember, I just remember the, the, the green initiatives during the Obama presidency, many of which sort of died to the tune of billions of dollars in some desert floor somewhere that did not go anywhere. They were eager to fund all sorts of attempts, not many of which actually made a buck. Uh, Do you suspect it could be some of that as well? Well, yes. And in terms of the energy transition funds that the federal government has put into play in the last budget, that amounted to about $4 billion. And we have a $341 billion deficit at the moment. So, you know, it's, uh, they're talking, uh, talking a great deal. They're uh, planning a great deal. They're making a lot of commitments around CO2 emissions. But to date, there has not been uh, much action uh, compared, to, uh, compared to the you know, height of the rhetoric. But, you know, as we go big, I think what we can look at is some significant uh, changes to the employment insurance, and it's getting close to a guaranteed annual income yes. in terms of the changes that they're making there, um, which is, uh, arguably is something that we've been looking at since the 1970s as being a very, very good idea because it will re- reduce bureaucracy, it will increase the uh, the degree to which those that are most vulnerable in society can actually have a steady income and uh, perhaps even afford housing, maybe in cities other than Vancouver. But um, And so there's the, the go big and go green, I think, are probably two different things. Okay. Do you see, by the way, in part as part of the going big, do you see the Feds intervening in owner taking an ownership position to one degree or another in seniors' facilities across the nation? Something we've come to learn over the past few months, Scott, uh, is is a part of our society that desperately needs attention. Oh, absolutely. And yes, I can see that, and I can see them also uh, t- trying to take an ownership of uh, a national daycare strategy one more time, and that's something that the New Democrats have been uh, have been calling for. But let's not forget that both of those are in provincial jurisdiction, and so it'll end up being negotiations with the provinces in order to transfer funding from the federal level to the provincial level uh, to assist in daycare and assist in senior facilities. And the provinces in particular, Quebec, and uh, I've heard some some from uh, British Columbia as well, are uh, guarding those jurisdictions quite uh, quite carefully, uh, with reason, because you know the, the Constitution is, uh, is something that they want to protect, and they want to protect their own jurisdiction, and it's, it would be much better for the provinces to get money from the federal government uh, than it would for the federal government to enter 
intervene directly in the province. Exactly. Uh, one of the things governments typically do, Scott McAlpine, when they want to stimulate the economy, is infrastructure. They fix roads and build bridges and do positive things to the, our, our, our lives. Uh, and they've talked a lot about infrastructure. Catherine McKenna is now in charge of that file. Uh, and yet we don't see a lot of evidence so far as to actual infrastructure spades in the ground doing stuff, spending. I think we'll see that come uh, come the throne speech, and I think we'll see uh, some announcements around increasing the federal in- infrastructure expenditure, uh, particularly in Indigenous communities, and also in the three largest cities, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. Um, I'm not sure, in terms of the spades in the ground, how much they can actually achieve uh, before they end up going having to go to election, which I would suggest was likely to be in June of next year, uh-huh. if they don't fall to defeat before then, uh, on the basis of the throne speech, which I don't think they will. Nobody else wants an election, right. uh, with the exception of the bloc, uh, perhaps, but uh, that doesn't really much matter. All three parties have to uh, gang up on the, on the Liberals in order to force an election. So I'm looking at the uh, the March budget, should we have one, as being a precipitant for an election, and this throne speech is uh, is the run up to it. And this is the this is the problem. Uh, the problem is that we're going to see increasing announcements of new money being spent. Right. But unless there's a uh, robust growth strategy, I I'm not sure how it's going to be afforded other than pushing it off to the future and to future generations to pay for it. Well, that's that's and, the thing that people are already suspicious of. We know, okay, a great great plan, good idea, go NDP all the way if you if you need to, Justin, go for it. But who on earth is going to pay for this? And and it would suggest to me, Scott, and we've only got 30 seconds here, but after that election, whatever it may be next year, watch out for some serious big-time tax increases. I would agree with you on that, absolutely. So, um, <laughs> something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Sterling, uh, a day is a long time in politics, and here we are, we're trying to predict nine, ten, ten months out, so it, a lot can happen between now and then. And what I really hope is that the uh, recovery uh, comes and that the growth comes and that we don't hit a second wave, because as soon as we hit a robust second wave, it's going to be the most vulnerable in society again that are uh, hurt the most, and uh, it's it's not going to be pleasant. And all bets are off. Yeah. Scott, thanks for this. Great to speak to you, sir. We'll do this again. Absolutely, Sterling. My pleasure. Scott McAlpine, president of Integrated Analytics and Research here in Vancouver. A pleasure. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.